When a user interacts with an application to order a ride with a ride-sharing app, the data for that user interaction is written to a transactional database. A transactional database is a database where specific rows need to be written to and read from quickly and consistently. Speed and consistency are important for applications like a user ordering a car and riding around in that car, because the user's client is frequently communicating with the backend database to update the session. Other applications of a transactional database would include a database that backs a messaging system, or a banking application, or document editing software. Generally, when you are the user interacting with a piece of software, that usage is being written to a transactional database. Oftentimes, this database is called an OLTP database. The data from a transactional database is often reused in analytic databases. An analytic database can be used for performing large-scale analysis, aggregations, averages, and other data science queries. The requirements for an analytic database are different from a transactional database because the data is not being used for an active user session. To fill the data in an analytic database, the transactional data gets copied from the transactional database in a process called ETL. And then once the ETL has happened from the transactional database to the analytic database, the analytic database can be used for fast queries on entire columns. For example, maybe you want to sum all the uh, amounts of transactions across all the rides in Uber on a given five-day period. That would be a longer query. It would be a more difficult query if we were just querying, for example, a operational Mongo database than if we're querying a analytic database where the columns are arranged for fast querying of the entire column. Because there is this separation of the transactional databases and the analytic databases of many organizations, there is some problems that can occur for data engineering in this ETL process where you have to move data from the transactional data store to the analytic data store. And those problems are things like consistency and just annoying ETL process that nobody likes to do. To address these problems, some newer databases combine the transactional and analytic functionality in the same database. And these databases are often called New SQL. These databases are often also built on higher-level abstractions and more modern abstractions like RocksDB and Kubernetes. TyDB is an open-source database built on RocksDB and Kubernetes. TyDB is widely used in China by high-volume applications such as bike-sharing and massively multiplayer online games. Kevin Xu joins the show to talk about working at PingCap, the company he works for, which is building TyDB. TyDB is also open source. Kevin talks about modern databases, distributed systems, and the architecture for TyDB. This is a good companion show to some previous episodes we've done on Kubernetes, especially Kubernetes in China, which is a recent show we did where we talked about the usage of Kubernetes in China, and also RocksDB, which the show I did on that has not aired yet, but it's a really good one, and I'm excited to have a use case of RocksDB that we're covering 
before I actually air the show about RocksDB itself. But RocksDB is a cool technology, and we'll certainly talk about it more in a future episode. With that said, I hope you enjoy this episode about TyDB with Kevin Shu. Kevin Shu, you are with PingCap. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. I'm a big fan of this pod. Well, that's great to hear. I want to explore new databases with you today. There's a brand of database called New SQL Database. Can you explain what that term New SQL Database means? Absolutely. So there's certainly a lot of different variations of this definition, but New SQL is essentially a relational database. So that is the most traditional type of database, relational database that actually scales very easily horizontally, just like a NoSQL database, which is how you get this New SQL versus the NoSQL versus the traditional SQL paradigm. And like you said, New SQL is this new generation of database that has really just come on the scene, I'd say, in the last five years or so, maybe even less, that is trying to solve really hard problems in the database world that really hasn't been solved before. There are perhaps some trends that contribute to the increased necessity of a new SQL database. Uh, We have trends like cloud computing, big data or machine learning. We have the rise of mobile. Which of these trends are contributing to a necessity of new kinds of SQL databases? Right. So I think the two big trends that are really contributing to this is the combination of cloud computing and big data. And if I may just do a quick kind of a tour of history, I guess, uh, very briefly about the database world. So like I mentioned, we first have the relational database, you know, starting in the 80s, perhaps even earlier than that, where you just literally have a table, right, like an Excel spreadsheet or something else you can visualize along that line that stores all your data, rows, column, everything is good because there really wasn't that much data to begin with. And then you did have the explosion of the internet, and then you also have mobile after that, where you started to get a lot of data because everything is becoming digitized. And that gave rise to the NoSQL category of databases that are particularly architectured or designed to solve the scalability problem very easily because otherwise growing your database just with the table structure originally, the relational database structure, is very, very difficult to do quickly. So that's kind of the use case that NoSQL databases were addressing. And then after that took its form, and it's still, you know, forming, right? NoSQL databases are still being used very, very heavily in a lot of places. What people realize is that the thing that NoSQL databases does not guarantee is what is known as data consistency, meaning that it's not a sure thing that all the data that's in your database is actually accurate or looks the same at any given time. So what the new SQL category of database like TidyB and others are trying to address is that we want to make sure we guarantee consistency first and foremost because our data does need to be accurate to do the things it's supposed to do and have that horizontal scalability very elastically just like a NoSQL database so that people can have kind of 
you know, the big data scale that everyone needs at this point, but also be assured that the data that you have in your database system is actually strongly consistent as opposed to not consistent, which could cause a lot of different problems depending on the business that you're in. When we started giving up some consistency restrictions on our databases, why were we doing that? And how are we able to now reclaim strong consistency? Right. I think everything that's in the database world, in the technology world, especially in the infrastructure side of things, right, which, you know, which related to computing, cloud computing, or database, there are a lot of trade-offs involved. There's no one set of solution that kind of just does everything you want for you. And if any project or product is presenting themselves that way, that's a bit of a malpractice. And I think what people had to compromise during the NoSQL era is that let's see if we can live without a little bit of uh, consistency trade-off because we just have too much data that we have to manage, too much data that we have to store and still make some use of it because the emergence of the internet and mobile technology, that's really kind of revolutionary and also unprecedented in the technology world. And only after, you know, a decade or so of, say, adopting NoSQL technology and frankly, probably getting burned in many situations where this consistency is really valuable, even in the context of needing scalability, that people like our company and others start thinking about, hey, we can't really make this trade-off completely in the other direction. Let's figure out ways where we can guarantee consistency and still have the type of horizontal scalability, a very easy scalable solution that the NoSQL world is presenting to the market. One axis that has changed as we talk about the earlier generations of cloud databases and cloud data infrastructure versus today is cost. It has gotten cheaper to buy machines. And, you know, physics hasn't changed. I guess you could say bandwidth and the network latency has gotten better over time. But from the data infrastructure companies I've talked to, one thing that has improved is this cost structure. And we can use cheaper data uh, systems and, and cheaper cloud transactions to paper over some of the consistency issues that we had to suffer under in the past. Is that accurate? Are there ways where we can just pay our way out of eventual consistency into strong consistency? I think there are certain levels in which you can, you know, say, throw machines at the problem, right? Or just throw hardware, more specifically, at the problem. And that is, in a way, what NoSQL and also new SQL databases are doing. You know, the whole kind of notion of horizontal scalability, as opposed to, say, vertical scalability, is that you just add similar similarly typed or similarly cost machine into your cluster and you just keep on adding them and adding them and the fact that you just can add them means more or less that your entire capacity is growing to handle your growth or your database need. And that is also, in a way, what cloud platforms, whether it's private or public, is presenting uh, that for their user, right? Like if you're a cloud uh, user of any scale, small or big, more or less you don't know or you don't really care what machine is actually underneath you to support the infrastructure. You just want it to work. Now, I think the flip side of that, though, is that just throwing the machine 
at the problem is only part of the puzzle. The other puzzle that our work at PinCap building TidyB is trying to fill is that there does need to be a more sophisticated level of software, which in our form is a database, right? Database is just a software. It's just an application at the end of the day can make that new world, this new horizontal world work better because the problem that's been introduced in that framework is that you now have to make all these different machines work together really well to guarantee the consistency and the scale and have the high availability of the data so your system or your business never goes down no matter what happens. So that is, I think, the two pieces of the puzzle that we are both trying to fill either from the software side or from the hardware, the commoditization more precisely of the hardware side. As we continue our top-down exploration of databases, and, and we will get into what you're doing at PingCap and the database that you have helped contribute to, TyDB, but just to, to go a little bit deeper into the, the high-level use cases, we did a show a while ago that, it, that really stood out to me, which was with uh, somebody from Uber about OLTP versus OLAP databases. This is online transaction processing versus analytic data processing, online analytic processing, whatever that acronym actually <laughs> extends <Right>. to. <laughs> um, Industry jargon. <laughs> Industry jargon. But what this actually meant in the case of Uber, Uber was such a good case study for this concept, is you know if you're summoning an Uber and then you take the ride and then the ride finishes and then you know you get out of the car and there's all this payment that goes on across the 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 transaction that is a that's a transaction so like first you summon the uber and then that's going to alter the mongo entry of your your session that you're starting with this driver and then you're in the car with the driver and maybe the the database is getting updated over time very quickly you know this just transaction processing then you get out of the car and then the Mongo database gets updated again because the ride has ended. Now you're going to get charged for it. Uh, and this is transactional processing. This transaction, transactional nature where a database entry is getting updated on a regular basis and the user is interacting with that data entry. And then over time, let's say every 15 minutes, Uber is extracting all of those transactions and loading it into an analytic processing database so that they can do things like aggregate the costs of all of the rides in the last 15 minutes, They can, which is a very different kind of, of analysis than, for example, let's update this individual user's ride. So you have a very different kind of query as opposed to you know looking at a data, specific database transaction, who is in the car right now, who are they riding with, versus let's aggregate across all of the data that happened in the last 15 minutes or the last year or something like that. These are two dramatically different types of queries. How does the fact that we have these very divergent query semantics that we need to ask of our data, how does that affect our database architecture? Right. So I think the Uber example is very, very telling in the sense that the transactional workload, right, OLTP, and the, the analytical query, OLAP, are trying to answer two very different questions that actually needs two very different sets of either requirements or criteria. And that actually is uh, giving rise or has always been the case, actually, where people who are designing databases would typically either design for one purpose or the other. 
So the design decision, if you're a database builder, that goes into designing a database that processes the OLTP workload, the transactional workload very well, is a very different set of consideration than the OLAP or the analytical processing workload. And the differences, broadly speaking, is that for the transactional side, you have to be able to do these transactions, these back and forth, very, very quickly and very, very accurately all the way down to the user level. So all the way at the, you know, if you're in a table, you know, there's a row that probably has Jeff's names on it. If you're an Uber user, there's another row that has Kevin's name on it because I'm also an Uber user. And then the updates as we take different rides, as we pay different kinds of drivers, the fares that we incur on a specific ride needs to be updated very quickly. And also concurrently, when you operate at the scale of not even just Uber, even something much smaller uh, in terms of the company size needs that concurrency to be done very, very well. But the nice thing with that workload is that the query length, literally the query length, is very, very short, right? So the operation is very, it's supposed to be very quick, but you have to be able to do that very quickly, efficiently at scale, and, you know, without, of course, messing up the accuracy of it. And then the analytical side is where you start to aggregate different you know, trends or buckets or portions of this large data set that you have accumulated over time from the transactions that you have processed to gather business intelligence or just to generate reporting and things like that. And those type of workloads usually gets extracted extracted based on column of a data. So the transactional side is more row-based and the analytical side tends to be more column-based. So when you see these more, I think, analytical-friendly database design, there's a term out there that folks might have seen called like wide column store, right? That's like a type of database because it's designed to help you pull up big amounts of data by column when the query itself doesn't really care that much if it's Jeff's transaction or Kevin's transaction or somebody else's transaction. It just wants to look at the world in the aggregate. And another piece, kind of going back to the consistency argument or the issue that we were talking about in the NoSQL world, is that in an analytical setting, even if certain data is wrong, or even if certain data is missing or just not updated uh, to the most updated status or state that it's supposed to be, it's probably okay, right? Given the need of just analyzing and getting intelligence on a macro level. But on the transactional side, you cannot compromise that level of you know atomic updates and make sure every single cell is accurate because I, Kevin, are I, I am gonna check you know, right whether I'm uh, you know paying this driver accurately. I want that number to be what I'm actually paying him for. I don't want it to be five dollars more for some reason, and you want that to be the same. And the driver probably wants his tips and stuff like that, and that has to be accurate too. But that has nothing to do with the analysis side of things. So that gives two different kinds of database design, you know, broadly speaking. Right. And to start to get into TyDB, let's give an example of a company that might use TyDB. So there's a few examples, actually, I want to run through. First one is a large bike sharing company. So let's think of a, a bike sharing company. It's you know kind of in some ways like the Uber example we just gave. But TyDB is, is this multi-model database that can help us, well, I'm not sure if you want to call it multi-model, but it serves both OLTP and OLAP 
queries. So instead of so just to give people more context on this Uber show that we did, they have a complex data pipeline where they are taking the transactional processing data, the record wide wise data, for example, like Mongo documents or maybe it might be a Postgres database where they have the records of each of the of the users established in a column and in a row wise fashion, like a row including each column. So you have user, uh, age, location, etc. All of these different fields. And uh, they have this, this regular job that translates all of those rows into columns. So you have all of the data co-located so that you can more easily aggregate, for example, all of the, the costs of all the... Uh, you can aggregate all the number of users in the United States, for example, because it's all arranged in one column. You can do these very quick aggregations. And so they have this ETL job, Extract Transfer Load, where they take the data from the transactional database and put it into the OLAP database. And the whole idea around some of these multi-model databases is that you don't necessarily have to do this. Everything is just in one database. Maybe it's replicated or maybe it's in this, this other kind of format. But let's talk about TyDB in this context. So when we're talking about TyDB and we're thinking about it in the context of a bike sharing company, why would a bike sharing company want to use TyDB? Right. So there are two reasons why someone like, you know, an Uber or the bike share example that you talk about, which is, I believe the company is called Mobike, which is one of the largest bike sharing, uh, dockless bike sharing platform in the world. I think they're one of the first that came up with this model to begin with. And the reason why they use TidyB is twofold. One is this pure scalability needs that they need to have as this platform or their business just takes off like wildfire. And that accumulates a lot of data. And it's not just purely for scalability sake, it's also to make sure that the database is guaranteeing consistency throughout the, you know, the record, essentially. And I'll talk a little bit about why that's important for their use case. And another element to Mobike using TidyB is also that they are a big MySQL user. And TidyB is designed to be, first and foremost, MySQL compatible for the reason that MySQL users tend to have scalability problems. And traditionally, how they are able to get by is through a process called manual sharding, where you basically break up these tables as they to get too big into smaller tables so you can scale them but you have to manage basically how these tables relate to each other in a manual sharding policy sort of a way and tidyb takes away uh, all that manual operational work and we do that automatically within the system and i'll talk a bit more about how that works in a little bit so mysql scalability is number one and number two is that similarly to Uber, Mobike also needs to be able to generate analysis of their entire platform, you know, really ongoing throughout the day. And that is what gave rise to or gave credence to TidyB's architecture, which really puts both OLTP workload and the OLAP workload that you were talking about into the system, into this hybrid database. I think the marketing jargon is HTAP, so HTAP, or Hybrid Transactional Analytical Processing Database. But regardless of the term, is to have both of these workloads in the system while minimizing this ETL thing that you were talking about, because this ETL transform, uh, extract, transform, load process causes a lot of delay 
uh, actually between uh, the transactional workload and making them available for the analysis to happen. And TidyB as a system minimizes those need to have ETL processes running on throughout the day. So you can access your transactional records a lot more quickly. So you can do what is really basically real-time analysis of your transactional records. So the MySQL compatibility uh, with the scalability and the hybrid structure or the architecture of TidyB is what Mobike is using us for. So is TidyB doing replication of data or is it storing the data all only once but in a way that is easier to query. So TidyB is automatically replicating data. So what's happening is that, and I can kind of go over maybe a bit of the uh, TidyB architecture, and this will help uh, listeners understand a little bit of how that's actually being done. So on the very top, you have your application that just says it's an application that uses MySQL as a database. And because TidyB is MySQL compatible, right below that application, you have a layer of servers that are called TidyB servers. And these servers are, number one, stateless. So they're actually very similar to microservices if you come from the cloud-native world. And all it does is that it translates MySQL queries into a key-value format and also uh, sends that query down to another layer underneath the TidyB server, which is called TyKV. And KV, again, just stands for uh, key value. So essentially, you have a relational layer that speaks MySQL on top of a key value layer. And in this key value layer, that is where the system itself would, number one, automatically break down the data into smaller partitions or chunks or shards. These are all kind of interchangeable terms to refer to this chunk. And then we use a consensus protocol called Raft that automatically makes copies of this data and put them onto different TIE-KV machines. And that just depends on how large your TIE-KV cluster is. It could be three machines, which is the smallest by default. It could go up to hundreds of different machines scaling horizontally. And the Raft consensus protocol will distribute or make copies of these uh, data automatically and then put them onto different TIE-KV machines so that these data will always be available in case certain machines goes down or there are other hardware failures that happen in your cluster, which always happens. And that's why we need to make these extra copies of each pieces of the data and make sure they're all uh, consistent with each other, meaning that they all have to look the same in order to guarantee the data consistency that uh, we were talking about with this new SQL category of databases. You're describing uh, a series of layers, the top layer being this SQL interface, and then the middle layer being this translation interface that translates SQL queries into key value query, that transforms SQL queries into key value queries. And at the lowest layer, the storage layer is TIE-KV, which is a key value store that replicates the different mapped entries. But here we can wonder... Well, okay, so we were just talking about OLAP data, where you have the data arranged in columnar format, like maybe I have 
the a column that is all of the the values of transactions in in Uber so that it's just like dollar amounts in a single column. But if we're talking about a key value store, that sounds like something that is more more like a document-based model at the lowest level. So how is this this key value storage layer at the bottom? How is this going to allow us to do OLAP queries? Right. So that's a really, really good question. I'm really glad you asked. So like you pointed out, the bottom storage layer is a key value structured database. And the reason why we chose that structure is that it is very helpful for guaranteeing transactions, first and foremost, guaranteeing consistency, strong data consistency, first and foremost. So that was the first part that we want to make sure we guarantee our system does, which key value pairs do really, really well. And the reason, there are two reasons why we can do OLAP also in the system very well. One is that because the uh, storage layer, which is TIKV, and the, say, compute layer, which is the TIDB server that I mentioned that speaks MySQL, these are two different components. They're two literally different uh, code bases. You can put any other compute engine on top of TIKV, and this engine could be more specialized towards OLAP-type uh, workloads. And we actually do have one that we support natively in the TiDB ecosystem as well called TiSpark, which is essentially a Apache Spark plugin that also sits on top of TiKV that uh, you know, will do what Spark does really well. And that has nothing to do with the SQL or MySQL side of things. It's independent of that, but it talks to the same data source, which is TIKV. And that effectively removes the ETL process or the ETL delay that we were talking about in a more traditional architecture. And that's how we are able to make this hybrid transactional analytical processing architecture work within TIDB. Now, that answers part of your question. The second part you're talking about is, well, it's still a key value pair, right? It's not really a column store. It's still not you know, natively amenable to OLAP queries. And something that we're working on, and I'm pretty excited to share this uh, piece of, I guess you can call it news, is that we are working on actually having another column-based storage to essentially be placed side by side with the TIKV layer. So you can kind of imagine two things on the top, which is TIDB, TISpark. And then you can see another layer on the bottom of that, which is TIKV, the key value side that guarantees transactions and strong data consistency, and another engine right next to TIKV that is actually column-based. And what we do is that we use the RAF consensus protocol to essentially make an extra copy every time it's doing the automatic replication and put that extra copy into this column store. And then on top of the column store, you can have a Spark or you can have some other kind of engine that will just do the OLAP query in this column store without really interfering or having to talk to a key value store that's just right next to it. And really with all that components together, you're really completing the, the so-called HTAP story that we are uh, working on filling. So then you really have a really performant OLTP database and a OLAP 
database all in the same system, again, without the ETL process essentially, so that there's very little delay in accessing your live transactional record to do real-time analysis. Okay, so if I understand correctly, the state of TiDB today is that it's a, a strongly consistent transactional data store with kind of a SQL interface on top, uh, a key value storage layer at the bottom. It's most effective for transactional processing, like getting into my Uber or I'm getting my my bike sharing ride and I'm I need a, a globally consistent database for this and it's it's written to disk and then if we want to do some faster operations on it in memory or perhaps some machine learning applications in memory built on top of that we can use tie spark and we can pull the data from the key value storage on disk layer into tie spark and we can utilize uh, sparks distributed in memory processing and have some some faster querying there and then what you just announced, what you're working on, is is that there is going to be a a columnar data format, a data storage format, alongside TIE-KV, so that the data is not only represented in a transactional-friendly key-value storage format, but it'll also be represented in a columnar format, and then you can also use TIE-SPARK to potentially pull in some of those columns if you wanted to do columnar oriented analysis on a faster basis because it would be in memory. Is that right? Did I get everything right or is that in Absolutely. You you got it perfectly. <laughs> okay. Okay, so there are some other databases that are doing this kind of thing. So I know the Thai KV layer for example, is inspired by the Google Spanner project. Spanner has been around for a while. What did the Spanner project do that was so memorable, and how does the TIDB, TIKV projects compare to the Spanner world? So we, as a company, PinCap, and also as the project itself, TIDB, really traces back our kind of architectural origin to the Spanner paper that was published a few years ago. That was when the PinCap founders, who were all infrastructure engineers working on some large internet companies, they were literally doing the sharding of MySQL databases themselves, read the paper and thought this should be the future of what a database ought to be, which is this you know, globally distributed, consistent, and easily scalable database that can guarantee consistency first and foremost. So you know you can have a relational uh, way of using database still uh, with uh, you know the scalability that we were talking about before. And another actually Google either project, it is also a paper now that we have leveraged as an inspiration for design is also called, it's called F1. So you can kind of Google, you know, the F1 paper from Google as well. And that actually is more akin to the TIDB layer, the MySQL layer that we have built, because that is really the relational interface on top, on top of uh, TIKV. So kind of the sort of the miss and match between these two worlds, broadly speaking, is that TIKV is generally speaking a open source implementation of Spanner, while the TIDB servers is a open source implementation of Google F1. 
And F1 is this thing that they use internally in Google to support their uh, advertisement network, which is, of course, very, very massive and also needs to be very, very accurate. So that is uh, kind of the the side-by-side picture that you can visualize between what we're working on in the TidyB world and what the spanner, I guess, inspiration or design is coming from. So that is sort of the origin and also how Spanner fits into us. And there's, you know, a few other companies or products out there too that are also quote unquote Spanner inspired. You know, there's almost this thing called a Spanner family of database that of course Google Spanner being one of them, uh, TidyB one of them, and a few others uh, being part of that category as well that are trying to solve perhaps similar problems in different ways. Though I would say one thing that I think TidyB stands out in is our layered architecture or a component-based architecture that lends itself really well to hybrid workloads in ways that others, at least to my knowledge, may not have gotten to that level yet. Okay, so Spanner, it was the was the breakthrough in Spanner the global consistency, the the emphasis on on consistency across all the Uh, database replicas in the environment? Correct, correct. And that's in a way a very Google-like problem, right? (laughs) Like there are very few companies that are at the scale that Google is at. So, you know, internally, I'm sure when they first started thinking about uh, building Spanner, it is for their own use. And the interesting thing now is that with more and more large companies like Uber, you know, Lyft, uh, Mobike, and others, some of them are TidyB users, they all have global footprint now. And it's not as it's not nearly a uniquely Google problem to solve anymore. And that's why I think there is a demand for Spanner-like implementations or databases out there where you do want geo-replication across geography. You want to have that consistency. You want to have that redundancy and also be able to have uh, one single database system that could serve users in multiple regions, uh, regions in terms of geography, uh, regions and time zones and countries and so on and so forth. Where did Spanner chronologically fall relative to the Amazon Dynamo paper? Was Spanner a few years after Dynamo? I believe so. I think, I don't, don't quote me on this off the spot, but I think it was published, uh, the Spanner paper at least, I think 2012 or some something around that line. Yeah, maybe a little bit later, maybe 2014. Okay, so and then the, yeah. the Dynamo paper earlier, I guess Dynamo was like the the uh, weekly consistent kind of distributed data system, right? Right. It's more like a, I think like a document store to begin with, and you know it's funny that you mentioned the weekly consistent framework, right? Which is more uh, representative of the NoSQL category of databases. And I think the thing that Spanner really came out and, you know, in a way really got a lot of people thinking is that we don't have to compromise uh, consistency just for the sake of horizontal scalability. We can, in a way, have our cake and eat it too. And that's what got a lot of people excited. How do we have that, though? How, what, are, what are we giving up? I think we talked about this a little bit earlier, but what are we specifically trading off when you know, what did Google do in the Spanner paper to accommodate for the obvious? I mean, if you have a globally, if you want a globally consistent database, it seems like every time I make a transaction, 
to this database, you know, if I'm writing to the database, uh, there are many transactions where I'm going to have to do some kind of global communication. There's going to be this really heavy latency penalty as all my database replicas around the world are communicating with each other. It feels like this blocking slowness that's going to be a painful trade-off. How do you get around that? Right. I think trade-off is the key uh, I think, element that I want to focus on, you know, kind of to address your question, which is really, really a hard question to answer, right? Because in the, you know, when we talk, started talking about this in the beginning, it is all about trade-offs, right? The, the perception that you can have your cake and eat it too is ultimately not accurate when it comes to reality. It's more like, what do you need? And how can we evolve our technology to get as close to what you need from the business perspective? And Google being its own kind of ecosystem has certain hardwares that could guarantee consistency uh, on the t- uh, you know especially along the line of like time accuracy there's this thing called true time api that is part of the spanner design that is very much specific to google's own data center essentially that is not available to anybody else that is outside of Google. So other solutions find other ways to solve this problem. But the big trade-off typically is you have this relationship or this balancing act between your throughput, which is the capacity that your system needs to have to process transactions or analytical queries, say on a per second level, right? Uh, And that's how you know, or that's the measurement that you need to keep track of to get the capacity, which, you know, horizontally scalable solution can offer that capacity uh, seemingly on a dime, just spin up new machines, add it to your cluster, you have more capacity. And the flip side of that, like you said, is latency. So how long can you realistically wait for these transactions to you know, get processed as your capacity grow? And there's always going to be a bit of a degradation on one side or the other of this balancing act. If you're going to just over, over optimize for latency, so latency basically meaning speed, you know, how quickly you can process something, then you want to keep your data small, everything in memory, and that still is the fastest way to do it. But if you want to have this one globally distributed database that can suck in all the workload in the same system, because it isn't just about speed, it's also about operational simplicity, you know, for the team, whichever team working for a company that needs to manage the system, it's always a lot more complicated to manage a bunch of different databases, as opposed to one single database that could more or less get to what you need with a single system. So there's less for you to manage. And that's what a lot of people use, perhaps Spanner, and certainly Tidy before, is the simplicity of the management or the operational cost, which has nothing to do with performance per se, right? But that's the trade-off that teams think about as they think about, do we want a database like this in our system? Can we have a meaningful, reasonable balance in the trade-off between throughput, latency, and the operational maintenance costs that we need to devote to manage our infrastructure. And that is kind of where we're getting at in terms of the the, the, the stage or the point that we need to be so people understand that the value of this kind of database, which isn't to promise everything in the world, but it does offer quite a bit if you want to uh, you know embrace it. Yeah, well, it sounds like 
you know as you said the architecture is a big deal the the way that you've you've created the architecture and it's open source so that you know people might iterate on the architecture or that you know the open source community might develop and and modulate the architecture more and to to get deeper into the architecture we can talk about the storage layer which is where these key value these key value regions are are being stored so the bottom layer of Thai KV, the well Thai KV where where the key value entries are being stored, which is uh, queryable via the the top layer, the Thai DB SQL layer, and this again the SQL your SQL transactions get translated into transactions that can return these key value entries. At the bottom layer, in this Thai KV layer you have a storage engine of RocksDB. So you have replicated RocksDB instances. So RocksDB is a storage engine that came out of Facebook. Can you explain what a storage engine is and what RocksDB does for the PyDB database stack? Yep, absolutely. So RocksDB or any other storage engine is, I think, the last layer between say something like a TyKV, which is a, a distributed storage layer, and the actual physical disk. So in this case, SSDs, but it could be any other kinds of you know physical disk where your data is physically recorded on. So RocksDB is the last layer in between TyKV and the physical disk or the machines or the bare metal that, uh, you know, where the data is actually physically stored. And tracing RocksDB's history a little bit, it was actually a fork of another storage engine called LevelDB that was first developed by Google. And then uh, Facebook forked it and decided to, you know, do something else with it, which became RocksDB for their own use case. And this might be getting into the weeds a little bit, but I do want to explain kind of what is the difference between RocksDB and maybe some other storage engine that is out there that folks might have heard about. But uh, there are two main ways that data gets uh, stored in the storage engine, uh, two different kinds of data structure, essentially. One is called LSM tree. Uh, it stands for Lock Structured Merge Tree. And this is a type of structure that is more optimized for write operation performances, and this is what RocksDB has. And the, and kind of the other type is called binary search tree or B-tree. And this is another perfectly legitimate, uh, good storage uh, structure uh, that is more kind of geared towards read performance optimization and things like that. And there are also some elements of compression rate that the LSM tree or the RocksDB way of doing things is much more amenable to more efficient compression, which means you can store more data, essentially, with uh, less space. And that's actually a pretty important consideration. And I think one of the considerations that you know Facebook had in the beginning is to get more out of their physical resources because these disks are pretty expensive. And you know the rate that Facebook grows, it could be a huge investment to uh, spend more money buying these disks. And if they can get more out of it, they should. So that was one of the uh, original motivation of Facebook building RocksDB. Of course, the whole thing is open source as well. And when we started building TyKV, uh, there was always the consideration that do you build your own storage engine right right below TyKV or you leverage something else that is already in the open source world that is much more mature. And the maturity of this piece of uh, component in the layer is critically important. 
And after assessing RocksDB, which was battle-tested by Facebook's internal usage, and also the motivation of RocksDB is actually very similar to a lot of the kind of classic users that TidyDB has, which is also big MySQL users. Rock, uh, Facebook is also a big uh, MySQL user. And they all have kind of similar needs and demands for their storage engine to be able to optimize for more write performance and also to get more out of their disks or out of their physical resources as uh, the company or the business grows larger and larger. So that is, in a nutshell, our motivation for why we chose to use RocksDB as a storage engine and why it's a good use case or a good fit for the use case that we are trying to fill for our users. If you only had one replica of RocksDB, that would be enough to serve your queries. But of course, if that database got blown away in a hurricane or got ruined otherwise, then you would lose all of your data. So you need to replicate your RocksDB instances, and you need to have uh, these replicas maintain consistency among each other. So you have your TIE-KV data broken up into regions, and a region is a set of continuous key-value pairs, and each of these regions is replicated some number of times, Describe the replication strategy for these regions of data in a TIE KV instance. Sure. So the regions, or you can call it chunks or partition, is uh, like you described how we automatically break down the key value pairs into uh, smaller chunks. So then we copy them. And the way we replicate them and how we determine the different configurations of copying these uh, pieces of data to ensure that when disasters happen, you still have your data is very much dictated by our implementation of the Raft consensus protocol. So just a quick primer on the consensus protocol itself. Raft is what is known as like a quorum-based consensus protocol. And what that means is that you literally have a group called a Raft group. And this group consists of the same copy of data that live on different machines. And they have to vote a, uh, for a leader. So one of the copy becomes a so-called leader that actually serves the traffic and interacts with the application layer. So in our case, the TidyB server and then the application layer on top of it, while the other copies serve as what is called followers to be there to essentially be ready to become a leader if the leader machine somehow you know, falls down. And then there will be like a re-election process to elect a new leader on a different machine uh, to do the same thing so that your service is always up. And... Because it's an election-based system, the copy of these regions that we make will always be in odd numbers. So either three copies or five copies or seven copies. And that's something that you as a user can configure depending on uh, how available, essentially, that you want to have your data to be. Obviously, more copy will give you more availability, more failure recovery kind of backups. But that does give you a larger a data footprint. So like I mentioned before, everything is kind of a trade-off. If you want more nines, essentially, you're going to have to probably have bigger capacity to store all this data. And some people are okay with it. Some people aren't. And 
The default size for this region currently is 96 megabyte by default, and that is more a trial and error process in which we figured out through all our production usage and testing that this is uh, more or less the optimal size to start with to balance, again, between the copies and the network traffic that needs to make RAF consensus work and also, you know, the hotspot that could form with each of the copies. Hotspot meaning that one particular region or one particular machine is getting all the traffic for some reason, and then other machines aren't, uh, you know, doing nearly as much work, these Thai KV machines. And then you will suffer performance degradation uh, because those hotspots are forming. And we do have solutions within the system to actually detect this hotspot as it forms and then automatically redistribute the, the the copies of the data again into different parts of the cluster so that these hotspots gets removed automatically within the system, which is a really nice feature that a lot of users with a large scale really, really likes. We could go very deep into the replication layer, but we're obviously, you know, we only have like 10 or 10 minutes left or so. <laughs> right. I'd like to go through some other elements of TyDB and then hopefully talk a little bit about the business. Let's go through the life cycle of a query. And this is something we could spend the entire show on, but I issue a query to TyDB. The query goes through the protocol layer, which is managing the connection and the communications with whatever client is is making the request. The query gets issued to the SQL layer, and in the SQL layer, it gets parsed through passed through a parser. It, it gets validated. There's type inference because you need to do this translation of a query that is in SQL into a query that can be served by the key value layer. And then eventually you have the key value layer that is doing the the serving of the data. Take me through the life cycle of a query to the degree to which you you, you think it would be helpful or we have time for the listeners. Maybe it can be a read or a write, or maybe you can contrast the two. Sure. I will try to do that in two minutes with an analogy, (laughs) if I can. And, you know, all the database out there, uh, database experts out there, don't shoot me for uh, glossing over details, because like you said, there are a lot of lot of details that goes into this process. But the way I like to explain this is uh, actually a query that you have to navigate in a database system. It's very similar conceptually to a GPS system. Like if you were to use a Google map, right, you want to go somewhere, you type in a address to go. That address is essentially is the query that you send down into TiDB. So that is where you want to get to eventually. And there are a lot of uh, kind of logical layers to, number one, parse through this entry, this address, to, number one, make sure is it even a proper address, because there are a lot of queries that don't actually make a lot of sense, right? And the system stops that, and it gives you an error. It'd be like, yo, this query doesn't actually make logical sense. You need this, you need that. So that is kind of the logical layer or the logical optimizer that looks at this address. And once this address is properly formulated, Then the GPS system, this Google map, has to figure out the route and the most efficient route to find this data that you want in this query and extract that from, in our case, the Thai KV layer. 
And that is what a uh, so-called like physical optimizer or physical you know plan is supposed to do. Is literally to physically figure out, okay, I have this address that I have to get to, uh, or this query I have to process. Where can I find this data in the most efficient way to get it back to the client or to the application layer? And one particularly unique thing about the TIKV structure as it works with the TIDB server is that because TIKV is a distributed system, right? A bunch of different machines underneath it. What we have leveraged is the structure of this distributed system to have what is called a coprocessor layer, which essentially is a way to do parallel processing. And in the context of a query, what the TIDB layer does as it tries to figure out the best path is to break down a relatively complex query into subqueries and actually send each subquery into different TIKV machines simultaneously to retrieve that result or like partial address from those TIKV machines. And then these TIKV machines will give the partial results back to the TIDB server. The TIDB server reassembles it into a more coherent fully result and then sends that back up to the application layer. So that is, in a way, the journey of a particular query and what that goes through in the TIDB system, which is hopefully an easy way to understand if you put the framework of just using your Google map into that context to visualize what actually happens to a query after it gets sent to a database system. Okay, that's great. And there's a ton of material around TyDB for people who are more curious about this. There's some great diagrams, some great YouTube videos that people can watch to get an understanding of the architecture. And I think it's actually whatever YouTube video I watched about the architecture was really useful because just seeing how databases have matured, even just over the last couple of years that I've been doing shows about them, and seeing how innovations like Spanner evolve like uh, RocksDB, how they just get pulled into database architecture and every new database that comes along learns from its predecessors. It's, it's useful archaeological dig. Let's talk at a higher level for a bit about the market and how to sell a database. We are in this world where the cloud providers are increasingly dominant in terms of the, the channels, dominating the channels of selling to developers. Of course, PingCap, which is the, the company that, that has has built or built most of TyDB, is based in China. And I realize the market for cloud providers there is slightly different. Tell me about the go-to-market strategy for PingCap. Mm-hmm. So, like you mentioned, the company started in China, and the I think enterprise market in China and the United States, or you know North America broadly speaking, is quite different. One of the key differences is the level of adoption of cloud in general, but particularly public cloud. Now there is, I think, a trend towards moving into a world of so-called multi-cloud, which is uh, either you use two different kind of public clouds or you do a combination of private and public cloud. And the way we see ourselves fit into this admittedly pretty crowded picture is that because our database operates at scale, which is something that I think a lot of company either needs right now or think they will need in the future as they grow. 
it's a very good sweet spot for us to be in, to be a multi-cloud database solution where you don't have to worry about cloud vendor lock-in, but still have one database that you can operate to, number one, get the performance that you need, and also to simplify the operational cost that goes into managing a database, which is no easy task. And that's something that we uh, you know, provide for our customers so they can consume this either as a service similar to an RDS uh, in, the, in, the, in the AWS world, or you can deploy this in your own private cloud as well. And we make that ex- experience consistent, doesn't matter which platform you're on, via uh, you know, uh, Kubernetes which is kind of the, the containerization orchestration layer that we leverage to make that experience consistent. So that's kind of from like a technical angle, uh, how we see ourselves fitting in into this uh, entire uh, market. And like you said, it is, uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, different cloud vendors have their different database solutions. But uh, because we are very much open source and we're big open source believers, and we also try to be as you know transparent about our technology and also the trade-offs as possible so that people actually do understand our technology and give the fair shake before you know they use it, as opposed to giving you a black box that just presents everything that you want to hear, as opposed to something that you actually need. And that is, uh, in a way, how we think about it strategically, given what we want to do in North America. And you know, it's still very early days for PinCap in uh, North America, but we have gotten a lot of good interest and traction. And uh, I think uh, there's, uh, you know, to be determined uh, how we uh, well we can do in this market. But we feel very strong from the architecture we talked about previously, that this hybrid transactional analytical processing framework is something that more and more company will take up. And that is the space or that is the competitive advantage that we will occupy because real-time reporting of your transaction data will be more and more of a need for fintech companies, for financial services in general, certainly e-commerce, ride-sharing, all these large categories of innovative companies uh, are growing and to be very mature, and they will need a database that's architected the way we have to solve these problems right now. So I go to these conferences, the Kubernetes conferences, KubeCons, and I'm seeing a lot of interesting trends around how enterprise adoption of technology is changing. So you've got increased adoption of Kubernetes, which is which is causing a lot of opportunity for companies that are selling Kubernetes into the enterprise space because all of these banks and manufacturers are looking for somebody to help them with their Kubernetes. But alongside the migration to Kubernetes, there's an adoption of cloud which is sort of a, a, in some ways, the proprietary alternative to Kubernetes, or perhaps the proprietary adjunct, depending on how you look at it. And and so you have companies adopting cloud, they're adopting Kubernetes, they're adopting products like TyDB. You just see this gigantic influx of enterprise dollars as enterprises become more and more willing to pay for this stuff. How are the buying patterns of large enterprises changing, and what opportunities is that creating for you at PingCap? Right. I think the KubeCon experience, uh, you know, I was there, I think you were there as well, is a very kind of visceral indication that 
number one, IT is really sexy now, <laughs> you know, which, uh, you know, is not always the case. And that large companies are willing to spend, honestly, like hundreds of millions of dollars at this point to transform their IT infrastructure, uh, perhaps with something like a Kubernetes in mind to really modernize themselves. And I think the reason why that's the case is because, and I, I personally believe that more and more people will see IT revolution or IT uh, advancement in a company become not just a cost saver, but also a money maker. Because with new technologies like Kubernetes, and with new databases that sit really well with Kubernetes, like TidyB, on top of you know, your Kubernetes infrastructure, that you can think of new businesses that you can actually make available to your users, new experiences, new products, all sorts of different things uh, in line with your business that you couldn't really do before because your infrastructure was so old. And it did not allow you to do real-time analysis, for example, or even real-time machine learning on transactional data. That's something like a TidyB could perhaps help you do. And I think that's what got people thinking that this transformation, as massive or as laborious as it may be, is worth the investment because it doesn't just save you money or uh, you know is a cost reducer, but could actually help you make more money in your business. And that is a very different way or different psychology that we as vendors are seeing that we are trying to you know help as well because we're no longer just you know the, the, the cost savers. We're not just playing on price per se, but we're playing with new possibilities, new revenue streams for our customers because of the way we develop our technology. And I think that's a very, very exciting direction for the whole IT industry to evolve into. Kevin Shu, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Wow.